0: Well, thank you everyone for your service this morning, leading us in worship, presiding over the body, praying for us and reading the Word of God. First of all, I give you a good report about our brother, Yun Nam. Um, We had participated in his father's funeral yesterday, and we were encouraged to just hear of his faith and his steadfastness in the Lord, him and his mom. We're very thankful to our church body for our prayers. And we're thankful to them for their just faithfulness to the Lord during this difficult time. So on behalf of you, and I send, send, him, send you a word of greeting, and um, he is ministering to his mom this morning. He's not with us, but he'll be joining us for worship uh, next Sunday. Placentia Flock is done and just a great job, excellent job of, of caring for him and his family and ministering to him during this time of need. And uh, second announcement, or sharing, a little more, I guess, uh, a little different. Mark and Amy are with us this Sunday, and uh, I think her due date is this week, 19th. So, my prediction is tomorrow, so we'll see if I'm a prophet or not. Uh, just knowing Amy's heart, she wants to be at church and worship the Lord, and then um, have uh, Lydia. And so, be in prayer for Marcus and Amy. Uh, parents here know what what awaits them, the joy and the challenges that await them. Well, last week, the main point of our study was this, very simple, that to grow in holiness, to grow in maturity, it requires physical discipline, physical effort. Salvation is free. Really, all we need to do is trust in Christ and pray and repent and we're saved. But holiness, godliness, spiritual maturity, costs, requires us to sacrifice. It requires intense emotional, spiritual, intellectual, and physical work, effort on our part to acquire these things. We found out last week that there are no shortcuts to godliness, there's only one road to growth the road of discipline. It is the unified testimony of the scriptures. First Timothy four seven. Mike read for us this morning. Timothy, have nothing to do with silly myths. These irreverent ideas about how to attain godliness. They're just a waste of time. Rather, train yourself onto godliness. Second Timothy one seven, Paul told Timothy again, God did not give us a spirit of timidity. But a spirit of power, of dunamis, a spirit of love, and a spirit of self-discipline, self-control. That tells us, whatever your personality, whatever your temperament, whatever your upbringing, no one is a victim here if you are a Christian. Because as a believer, God has given us a new spirit. And as a spirit that desires discipline, that desires self-control. When we're non-believers, we love spontaneity. We love being led by our emotions and led by our moods and circumstance. That's the world we lived in. But once you're a Christian, our hearts have been changed. God has given us new affections, new desires. And one of those desires is a desire for self-control, a desire for a disciplined life. Why? Because that road to discipline leads us to Christ-likeness, to maturity and holiness. Proverbs 25:28. Solomon said, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So a man who has no self-control, he is helpless. He's like a city without walls. He's, uh, he's vulnerable to attack. Vulnerable to any enemy, any adversary. Such is a man who is undisciplined he is emotionally, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. If he is undisciplined, he is helpless. He's a helpless man, given to being blown and tossed by life. And life is not our friend. This world we live in is a fallen world. If we think this world will be friendly towards us and leave us alone with our, when our walls are destroyed. We have another thing coming. If our walls are destroyed, you can guarantee they will attack at every opportunity. And in Galatians 5, 23, Paul lists all these fruits of the Holy Spirit. A man who is led, who is walking, who is living by the Holy Spirit. They're the fruits that he is producing in his life. And the last one, the height of them all is what? Self-control. Self-discipline. Tells us that self-control is a direct byproduct of the Holy Spirit, that a believer who is filled, led, influenced by the Holy Spirit will in growing measure possess the ability to control himself. But if someone is not able to self toward self-discipline, if someone is not given towards self-control, it points to one reality that he or she is not being led by the Holy Spirit. Instead, he or she's being led by something other than, than God. The testimony of the Bible is unified and unambiguous about the essential place of self-discipline for the purpose of godliness. It is also the unified testimony of godly men who have lived it out. There have been men and women throughout the centuries who took the word of God and they said, You know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey it. I'm going to test it out and live it out and see if it's true. And everyone who is truly godly, truly God-fearing and obey the Scriptures, at the end of the race or along the race, their testimony is equal to the Word of God. The Martin Lloyd-Jones, godly pastor, utterly a godly man, said this, we must discipline ourselves. But we must do so all year round. And not merely at stated periods. I must discipline myself at all times. How often do we hear about the discipline of the Christian life these days? How often do we talk about it? How often is it really to be found at the heart of our evangelical living? There was a time in the church when this was at the very center And it is, I profoundly believe, because of our neglect of discipline, that the church is at her present position. I see no hope whatsoever of any true revival and reawakening until we return to disciplined living. J. Adams said, the word discipline has disappeared from our minds has disappeared from our pulpits, from our mouths, and from our culture. We hardly know what discipline means in modern American society, and yet there is no other way to attain godliness. Discipline is the only path to godliness. And John MacArthur, our third elder of Cornerstone Bible Church, the present benefit of spiritual discipline is a fulfilled, God-blessed, fruitful and useful life. If you get involved in spiritual training, spiritual gymnastics, the blessings of godliness will carry on into eternity. Although many people spend far more time exercising their bodies than their souls, the excellent servant of Jesus Christ realizes that spiritual discipline is a priority. End quote. And this is why, I I figured it out, this is why so many Christians are mired in compromise. Are mired in stagnancy. Mired in drama and complexity and there's no true growth. That in spite of their fanfare and outward facade of commitment to religion, in the private arenas of their lives, they're not involved in spiritual gymnastics. Behind closed doors when no one is watching, they're doing anything but meditating on the Word of God. They're not immersed in prayer. They're not disciplining their bodies for the purpose of godliness. For all their talk, their walk is weak. And this is the reason for the weakness of so many Christians. And I challenge you to look into your life today as an expert examiner. And consider whether the reason for your the state of your heart, the state of your Christianity. And consider that it just might be because... You're not involved in spiritual disciplines. You're not committed to it. You're not devoted to it. And you are not practicing it. You know, last week, we spent a bulk of our time looking at the six differences between legalism and spirit-led approach to spiritual disciplines. Remember that? We spent a bulk of time. And I, I did this because people that don't know our church... You know, it's an easy attack. You know, they're legalistic. Cornerstone, Bible Church. See, Bible Church. Legalistic. Capital L. You know, I'm sure they're heavy-handed over there. They're very mean and very strict. And they're legalistic. And I hear that once in a while. And based upon that, we went through the six differences between legalism and spirit-led. So as to not produce a legalistic mentality in Cornerstone. I thought about it this week and I said, James, you know, I, I literally, I literally said, said this, what a knucklehead. Come on, James, that's so foolish. You know, like, in thinking through that issue, I forgot about Cornerstone, I forgot about you. I was so concerned about people outside of the church, what they label us. I forgot about me and the culture that really exists at Cornerstone. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we would, we would say that legalism is not a threat to Cornerstone, right? For the majority of us, really, there is no danger of us being too intense in word or prayer or discipline. In fact, the opposite is the threat in our church, in our lives, in my life. It's not the L word, legalism, but it's the other L word, the L word, libertine. Libertine. And then we know that r- word very very intimately, do we not? It's the carefree approach to Christianity. The careless, complacent approach to spiritual discipline. I was shopping years ago and there was an alarm clock. And the alarm was, with a Hispanic theme. And it was, manana, manana, you know, stay in bed, manana. And I was like, wow, that's pretty neat. Should I buy this alarm clock? I like its message. Why wake up? Why do it today? Do it mañana. Do it tomorrow. Well, that's the the growing threat of cornerstone, the mañana mentality. Why discipline myself today? Why read the Bible today when I can do it tomorrow? I mean, that's where we live. We live in Orange County. It's Orange County Christianity. It's in the air. I mean, it's it's in the air we breathe. This mentality to be kicked back, to be relaxed, not to take things so seriously and just kind of go with the flow. The threat is not legalism. It's not a monastic life at Cornerstone. The threat is Cornerstone Country Club, is it not? It really is. That's what I fight every day. You know, when I'm at Kazakhstan and I see guys, you know, Muslims around, I see just idolatry and sin all over the place. I'm alert, I'm awake, when I'm in the mission field, when I'm in Orange County, I mean, it's just in the air we breathe. So how do I fight this manana mentality? This is how I do it, maybe it'll be encouragement to you. There are many things, I mean, every Sunday when we just look at the cross, it rebukes us of our complacent mentality. Every time we read the Bible, every passage reminds us of the urgency of the hour to pursue Christ and make Him known. But two things really um, stand out in my heart, and these are things that I think through, illustrations and points that I think through, that give me the edge in terms of, of, of just stepping it up and with abandonment committing myself to spiritual disciplines. The first one is, I taught on this years ago, and it stays with me to this day, it's the um, Saving Pride Ryan illustration. Right. This past week we had Veterans Day on uh, Channel 7, for the second or third year in a row, they showed Saving Private Ryan, uncut. And, um, you know, with my wife, we watched a little bit of it. And there's a part in the scene where these eight guys, their mission is to go save Private Ryan. And as they're walking on the field, one guy's complaining, I don't get it. Eight guys, the math doesn't work out. Eight guys risking our lives for this one guy. Why is he so special? And one guy said, well, this Private Ryan has a mom. I have a mom. He has a mom. We all have moms here. Or oh, he's important. Why wow, we're not important? They're like, why are we risking eight lives to save one guy? One guy said, well, this guy better do something with his life. You know, this guy better do something, something. At least make a longer lasting life bulb, I think one of the lines of the movie was. He better do something with his life. Because if we do this, and then... He lives a sinful, selfish life. He wastes his life playing games, playing sports, shopping, watching TV, living in sin. I'm mad living here, but, you know. (laughs) We'll make a sequel. And the movie will be called Killing Private Riot. We'll come up out of our graves and kill this guy because we risked our lives, gave our lives for him, and he wasted his life. Well, at the end of the movie, and they save Private Ryan, and a few guys indeed lose their lives, and the majority of the men die, because in their mission to save him, Tom Hanks is on the bridge, and he's shot, he's about to die, and he shakes you know, Ryan's hand, and he says, what does he say? He says, earn it. He says, earn this. What does that mean? It means, we saved you, we, we finished our mission, we risked our lives, we gave our lives, we sa- you're already saved. Now, live your life to equal the price that was paid to save your life. Earn it. So, you know, probably right in the movie at the end, he's all old and he looks at his wife and he says with tears, Have I been a good man? Have I earned it? Have I lived a life worthy of the price that was paid to save me many years ago? Well, that's exactly what Paul says to Christians. Walk in a manner worthy of Christ. We can never earn it. It's not salvation by works. But in light of the price that was paid to secure our salvation, we must endeavor to live a life worthy of it. We're not worthy, but try to be worthy of the price that was paid. So, when I struggle with this manana mentality, I preach to my heart, earn it. Earn this, right? That that motivates me. That helps me to fight the libertine mentality. Secondly, you know, again, a war war illustration. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Harold Moore said this during in the in the heat of battle and war. You don't fight for your flag. You don't fight for honor or your country. You fight for the guy next to you. You know, you you stay your ground. You're faithful to your responsibility because the guy next to you is counting on you. Well, likewise, in the Christian faith, that is exactly it. When I want to be lazy and relaxed, I realize my life is not my own. I don't live in a solitary existence. I live and I fight for brothers and sisters who depend upon me. My wife, depends upon me. And it's important for my wife's sake that I'm a godly man. My children depend upon me. My fellow elder depends upon me. The flock shepherds, the members of Cornerstone, Christians throughout the world, we share the same suffering. That's what Peter said, right? First Peter, all the brothers throughout the world suffer together. Therefore, for their sake, I need to Shrug off laziness and fight the good fight of the faith every day. Well, you might say, James, isn't it wrong to do things for people? No, it's not wrong. It's not. The church is the body of Christ. Whatever you do to the least of my brethren, Jesus said, you do them unto me. So when we serve the church, who are we serving? We're serving the serving Christ. When we help Christians, who are we helping? We're helping Christ. Because the church is the body of Christ. So when by our faithfulness, we encourage Christians, who are we pleasing? Ultimately, we're pleasing Christ. But because of our laziness, because of our complacency and carefree living, we discourage believers. We are displeasing Christ. I don't know that's true in my life. That I, as a brother in Christ, if I'm sinning, I'm not encouraging you. I'm not encouraging Christ. But the converse is true. These are two things that helped me to wage a war against the libertine mentality that is alive and well here in Orange County. May we continue to fight the fight strenuously together. Well, let's go to the spiritual exercises. Let's look at the the... Spiritual disciplines um, that will grant us freedom to grow in holiness and maturity, and I mean there are so many spiritual disciplines. The list is almost exhaustive. Um, one of the more recent books that I was that I started to read and I put it down was uh, Don Whitney's a great author has many great books. His latest book is How to Simplify Your Spiritual Life, and I understand what he's saying. But as I started the book, my heart was, man, I have to do all these things. Now i got to simplify my Christian life. It's like another thing to do, another discipline to fulfill my life. Well, I'm so busy with the disciplines that I have. I don't want, I don't want to add this another task on into my life. So I don't want to bombard all of you with 29 spiritual disciplines to do this week. Uh, It would not be right, and it would not be reasonable. So I pared it down to the essentials. And then, and I edited it again. And then I cut some more, and I went down to the irreducible disciplines. These are five irreducible, essential, spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. And if you and I be faithful to these five simple exercises, you will grow. I mean, world, watch out. The world will see, God will see a man or woman of God on fire, burning for the Lord. The first two, first two are general overarching disciplines. The last three are specific disciplines. The first one, again, we, we briefly talked about it last week, mortification of sin. Mortification of sin. It's from Colossians 3, five. Put to death. Put sin to death. Kill it. Kill sin. How do we kill it? It takes physical effort. We need to use physical effort to kill sin. Sin, although dethroned by Christ, is still potent. And it uh, exerts great influence and measured degrees in a person's life. Therefore, it is the first and lifelong assignment for the Christian warrior. To step to the line. And battle one-on-one against sin. Consider as dead. It is necros. Means to kill. Believers are to make a decisive resolution. To put sin to death. Have you decided that yet? Have, have you tried to coexist with, with sinful terrorists? Right. Have you tried to have a win-win situation with sin? I'll let you win in some part of my life. I'll give you these areas. You can have it. But in public, let me not sin. Okay, When I'm at church, let me look holy. When I'm in front of people, when I'm ministering, right? give me success in this area and I'll give you those private areas. Have you negotiated with sin? The Bible says no. You're, you're, it's a fool's game. Sin is not content with part of your life. Sin wants to consume your soul. He wants to devour it. And church history is a testimony of many well-meaning believers who have negotiated with sin and they have been devoured. And their sad testimonies are, are reflective of their, of their negotiations with the enemy. Have you made a decision to kill sin in your life? Well, how do we do this, Pastor James? How do we kill sin? Well let me give you six practical steps to mortify sin. six practical steps. number one, set your faith clearly and solely on Christ. We were saved by faith. Don't resort to works. continue to live the Christian Christian life by faith in Christ. actively believe in Christ, trust in Christ, hope in Christ. Over against your sins, in the midst of your greatest depression, as being, as, as you're conquered by sin, you have been slain by your flesh, even at those darkest hours, hope in Christ. Cling to the cross of our Savior. Our Lord has gone, but He has given us a helper. He said, I will send you a paraclete who will arm you with the armor of God. He will strengthen you, enable you, empower you to fight against sin. Therefore, trust in Me. Through the Holy Spirit, and you will experience mortification of sin. Don't don't believe in works. It's that old paradox. We work hard. our eyes are fixed on Christ. We don't believe in what we do. Our faith is not on our strength, on our discipline, on our temperament, on our disposition, on our ability. Our strength is that we look to Christ and He is our hope. John McArthur said in an article in the Master's Seminary Journal, Concerning the mortification of sin, he wrote, Sin cannot be annihilated through legalism, monasticism, pietism, asceticism, pharisaicism, celibacy, self flagellation, confessional booths, rosary beads, hail marys, or any other external means. Sin cannot be annihilated this way, in these ways. The instrument of mortification is the Holy Spirit. And His power is the energy that works in Christians to carry out the process. How is the Holy Spirit's power released? By trusting in Christ. By believing in the Word of God. Simply taking God's Word at face value and running with it. Trusting in Scripture. That is how we live by the Holy Spirit. Second step is fill your mind with the the greatness of God. Through His Word. Fill your mind to the greatness of God through His Word. Study theology proper. Study the attributes of God. Study God's sovereignty, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, God's holiness, God's infiniteness, God's righteousness, God's justice, God's love. Study God. See, as mortal beings, sin is big and God is small. Every morning we wake up and sin is a reality. Sin is huge and God is small. How do we fight that? We fight that by having God be big in our lives, in our minds, and sin being small. And how do we accomplish that? By studying the doctrine of God. I believe it was Pink who said that every sin is the result of a wrong understanding of God. And that's true. Every sin. You could, you could connect the dots why did I sin this way? Why is my heart downcast? You connect the dots and if you connect it further enough it will lead you back to God. Oh, I sinned because my conception of God in this area was wrong, it was erroneous, it was incomplete, it was blasphemous. That's how to fight sin with a, with a some majestic understanding of the greatness of our God. Who God is, the power that He has, filling our souls with that truth. Third step, very important step. Stop sinning. Stop it, all right? Just stop it. Do it no longer. Refuse. You are no longer a slave to sin. Say no to ungodliness. Say no. You know, I think a lot of believers. Don't understand that you can say no. You don't have to live in sin. You really don't. You don't have to live in compromise. You have the power and the freedom to say no. Like this master comes to you with a whip and says, you know, do this and do that. And we've lived as slaves for so long, we're accustomed to following its its commands. But one day we have to realize, wait a minute. You're not my master. What are you doing with me? You have no power over me. I say no. And you know what the master will say? He'll say, okay. Alright. You don't have to do that. You know, you're free. Christ is your Lord. He's your master. I have no power over you. And you'll find, that's right. I can say no. Stop sinning. Resolution 24 by Edwards. I mean, <laughs> let mean to summarize it. Resolve to stop sinning. That was his resolution number 24. As Paul's commands, the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 425, each of you put off falsehood. Ephesians 428, those of you who are still stealing, you're Christians now. Stop stealing. Stop it. Ephesians 429, those of you who are involved in unwholesome talk, do not let this happen. Ephesians 431, get rid of all bitterness. Rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Romans six twelve. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Because sin is not your master. Verse fourteen. You are not under law, but you are under grace. Stop sinning. Step four. It is not enough to to stop sinning, because. By nature, we hate vacuum. We hate, we can't do nothing, right? We can't just sit there and not sin. Fourth step is the law of replacement. Substitution. Substitute good things with sinful things. There must be a substitute. You must replace. This is where so many Christians fail. They don't think through far enough. J. Adams said, This step of change is absolutely essential. I cannot overemphasize this fact. It is not enough to put off the old ways. There must be an equal and opposite positive effort to put on new biblical ways in the place of the old ones discarded. One cannot really put off the old without replacing it with the new. The two cannot be separated. Who cannot? Some someone said that in our minds, ten thousand thoughts go through our minds every day. How many of those are sinful thoughts? The 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 answer is not. I'm not going to think anymore. I'm just going to (laughs) like look out into the you know window and just not have thoughts because they're you know bad thoughts. Not possible. How do you fight sinful thoughts? You replace them with true thoughts, biblical thoughts. First, Philippians 4, whatever is true, noble, god and praiseworthy, think of such things. Don't listen to your thoughts. Preach to your heart. Teach your heart truth. Teach your heart thoughts that are right and noble and praiseworthy. And that was um, Paul's philosophy. Ephesians 4.25 Put off falsehood. Replace it with truth. Ephesians 4.28, those of you who steal, steal no longer. But that's not enough. Instead of stealing, what must you do? You must work. Right? Until you work, and you provide for yourself with your hands, you're still stealing. You must work. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but instead... What comes out of your mouth to be what that builds others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. The law of replacement. So stop sinning but identify what those things are and replace it with something good. Fifth step. Habitually weaken and kill your lusts and evil desires understand and know the source of our sin. It's in the realm of our lusts, our evil desires, our sinful passions. It is important to realize that your lust, my lust, sets itself against our souls with violence every day. One author said, sin strives daily to was Owen, John Owen, darken the mind, extinguish convictions, dethrone reason, interrupt the power and influence of the Holy Spirit, and extinguish the flame of faith. Every morning, every day, our lust seeks to do that. First Peter two eleven Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from what? Passions of the flesh. Why? What is His passion? It wages war against your soul. James 1, How are we tempted? Is God tempting us? Where is sin coming from? But each one is tempted when he is lured and intense by his own desire. That that desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth to death. All it takes is one lust, deeply rooted in our behavior, to bring about darkness of the soul. So what we need to do is go underneath the surface. right? Don't shoot at the fruit. Go to the root. right? And kill sin where it lives. Where does it live in our lives? In our lusts, in our desires, in our passions. So identify. Do I have a lust to be rich? Am I designed to be popular? To be known? To be famous? Am I designed... To make myself more than I am? Am I lusting after women? Am I lusting after things? Do I want to be rich? What is my lust? What is my desire? What is my agenda? And kill the lust. Kill that desire that wages war against your soul. And instead replace it with, I want to glorify God. All I want out of my life. All I desire is to glorify God. By being a godly husband, godly father, godly pastor, godly man, godly woman, a godly person and following Christ, that's my only lust, my only epitheme, my only desire. You have that lust and you'll live it out. But that's where we fight. So habitually weaken these sinful lusts in our lives and you'll mortify sin. And then finally... Final step is to constantly fight sin. To forever contend against sin. Edwards Resolution 56 Resolved never to give over nor in the least to slacken in my fight with my corruptions however unsuccessful I may be. Never to stop. No matter how unsuccessful I am not to stop fighting against sin. That's the first step, mortification of sin. The first physical effort required by the believer. Second discipline is redemption of time. I made it kind of easy for you to remember. Mortification, redemption. At the core, what is the discipline of life? What is the discipline spiritual life? It is the discipline of time. Disciplining oneself in time. Not to waste the time, but redeeming the time for God's work. You know, our model is Jesus Christ. You look at his life. You know, he lived his life with such energy and passion and commitment that at the end of his life, he said, I completed the work he gave me to do tells us that each person has work that God has allowed us to do. And he understood just the amount of that work. And so he spent himself to finish it. You look at the Gospels and it becomes immediately clear that our Lord was a busy man. And this is true. Godly men are busy busy men. Godly women are busy women. It's true. And look at the Scriptures. Read Mark's Gospel and notice how often the Word immediately comes in its pages. We read of Christ ministering all day and into the night. And the next morning, He wakes up early to pray. And He is so tired. I mean, He was a carpenter. He knew a blue-collar factory worker, right? I mean, He knew physical labor. And yet, He was so exhausted that He was in a boat. There was a storm and He was still sleeping. He was so exhausted. Crowds of people pressed upon him every day. And yet he spent himself. And he said, while it is day, we must do the work of God. Because when night comes, we can't work any longer. And night is coming. While it is still day, I must do the work of Him who has called me to do His work. Likewise, Paul imitated Christ in this manner. I did a concordance search of these two words and found five references. The word search was night and day. Night and day. What does that tell us? That Paul was working night and day. Acts 20, 31, 24, 7. Be on your guard for three years. I never stopped warning you. Night and day with tears. He didn't say, you know, I don't want to burn out. Come on, guys. You know, I don't want to go too, too radical in this Christian thing. I'll give you four hours a day. Right? On Saturday and Sundays, six hours, right? No, night and day. First Thessalonians two nine, you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day. First Thessalonians three ten, night and day, we pray for you. Second Thessalonians three eight, we work night and day, laboring and toiling for you. Second Timothy one three. I thank God of my service. My forefathers did with a clear conscience. For a night and day, I remembered you in my prayers. That's why Paul said at the end of his life, I fought a good fight. fought a good fight. I ran a good race. Now I'm ready for my rest. I'm ready to rest. This is the second physical discipline required for true godliness. Redeeming the time, brothers and sisters. Redeeming the time. Ephesians 5, 15-17, Paul said, Carefully look at how you live your life, how you walk. Live your life, not as an unwise person, but as a wise person. Now, what is it, what is an unwise person? How does he live his life? Verse 16, he doesn't make best use of his time. Unwise person... Waste his life, waste his time. But a wise person makes use the best use of the of the time. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is foolishness? Wasting time. You're a fool. What is God's will? To redeem the time. Redeem the time. Well, I did a lot of research. I really did for the second discipline. And then I came upon Jonathan Edwards' sermon on Ephesians 5.16 titled, The Precious Importance of Time and the Importance of Redeeming It. I read the sermon and you know these Puritans, man, like, these saints of old, they understood godliness. I mean, they, they humbled me. They, and I love John Edwards. And I'll, I'll tell you, my wife saw me do this. I mean, after I finished Ian Murray's biography of Edwards, I kissed the book. You know, I hugged it. I mean, it was that precious because it helped me to grow as a believer. I mean, it was just the, the example, the teaching of Puritans. Man, I, I love it. And, I, and I, I share this with you because I know you will profit from it. So, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to read a sermon, right? How can I say it better than Edwards? I can't. I just want to, and I summarize it. I'm not going to read you everything because, you know, they're Puritans. But I summarize it. And I know if you listen, you will benefit greatly. This is what he said. We should set a high value on time and be exceedingly careful that it be not lost. And we are therefore exhorted to exercise wisdom in order that we may redeem. Time Time is precious for the three following reasons. Number one, time is very short. Therefore, it is very precious. Time is short. The scarcity of any commodity occasions men to set a higher value upon it. Especially if it is necessary and it is scarce and you cannot do without it, then it is prized. So time is to be more prized by man, because we have little of it. James 4:14: 4, "What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while, and then it vanishes. Time is so short, and the work which we have to do is so great, we have no time to spare. We have no time to spare. The work which we have to do to prepare for eternity must be done in time. And if we waste it, we cannot finish the work. Time is short. Secondly, time must be esteemed by us as precious because we are uncertain of its continuance. We are uncertain of its continuance. We know that it is very short, but we don't know how short it is. We know not how little of time remains, whether several years, or just one year, or only a month, or a week, or a day. We are every day uncertain whether this day will not be the last. There is nothing that experience does more than to verify this. How much more men must value time. Because we know not how much more time we have. Thirdly, time is very precious because when it is past, it cannot be recovered. When time is past, it cannot be recovered. There are many things which men possess, which if they part with, they can obtain again. If a man has parted with something which he had, not knowing the worth of it, or the need he should have of it, he can often regain it At least with pain and cost. But it is not so with time. For when, once that is gone, it is gone forever. No pain, no cost can recover time. Though we repent ever so much that we let it pass. It is to have no purpose. We cannot gain it back. Every part of it is successively offered to us. That we may choose whether we will waste it or invest it, redeem it. But if we refuse, it is immediately taken away. Gone forever. Never to be offered more. It is out of our reach. What have you done so far with your time? Especially the time of your youth. Have you wasted it? Worse than wasted it, have you spent it in sin? Edward said, Would it not have been better for you if all that time you had been sleeping or of non-existence? Three reasons why time is precious and then he reproves three groups of people concerning time. There is nothing more precious, but nothing that is wasted more. There are several sorts of persons who are rebuked by this doctrine. First group is to the lazy. To the lazy. Those who spend a great part of their time in idleness, or doing nothing that turns to any virtuous account, either for the good of their souls or bodies, not for their own benefit, or nor north the benefit of their neighbor or family or to their community. This reproves them. Their hands refuse labor. They rather let themselves, let their families, let their community suffer rather than be diligent. Second group is to the sinful. They are reproved by this doctrine who spend their time in wickedness. Who do not merely spend their time in doing nothing of any good purpose, but instead they sin. You are rebuked by this. And thirdly, those who are diligent for worldly gain. They are disciplined. They don't waste their time. But they spend time for themselves, for worldly gain, worldly pursuits. And then he exhorts the readers exhorts believers to improve our time in this way. Three ways. First of all, remember that you are accountable to God for your time. That you are accountable to God for your time. Time is a talent given to us by God. Our day was appointed for some work. We must give account to Him of the improvement Of all our time. As our employers will at the end of the day. What what did you do this day? Nine hours of work. What have you accomplished? You must give an account. Likewise, God, as God's servants, we are accountable to Him. Christ has told us that for every idle word which men speak, we will give an account to Him on the day of judgment. How much more we must give an account of all our idle, misspent time. Secondly, consider how much time you have lost already. Consider how much time you have lost already. For your having lost so much, you have the greater need of redeeming the time that remains. You ought to mourn and lament over your lost time. But that is not all. You must apply yourselves all the more diligently to redeem the remaining time. You who are considerably advanced in age, you have hitherto spent your time in worldly cares. You have been in great measure negligent of the interests of your souls. You must be terrified terrified and amazed when you think how much time you have lost and wasted away. Consider that in that lost time you have more need of diligence because you have the same work to do that you had at first. You had a lot of amount of work but because you have wasted time you have less time to do the same work So with the time remaining, how much more ought to redeem the time? Because the work you're accountable to still remains before God. Finally, consider how time is valued by those who are near the end of it. How time is valued by those who are near the end of it. What a sense of its preciousness have poor sinners sometimes cried out. Oh, I will give a thousand worlds for an hour of time. It is the near approach of death that makes men sensible to the inestimable worth and the value of time. How their eyes have been opened when death draws near. And he says this, Brothers and sisters, listen carefully to what he says here. There are two ways of making men sensible of the value of time. Two ways. One is by teaching them, and second is by experience. All men will one day experience the preciousness of time. But if they learn it this way, it is too late. Does that make sense? All men will learn one day. I wasted it. Time is precious. But if you learn it that way by experience, it's too late because time is gone. Although all men learn it, the only true way to learn it is by teaching of the Word of God. If you wait to learn the preciousness of time through experience, it's too late. For you have wasted it. He gives us three applications, three exhortations to conclude his sermon, three things in particular. In light of the preciousness of time and the work that is to be done, number one, redeem the time today without any delay. If you delay, still more time will be lost and it will be an evidence that you are not sensible of its value. Do not talk of more convenient seasons to do the work of God. You know, Do not wait till you're in college or you're working. Do not wait till you're married. Do not wait till your children are grown. Do not wait. Immediately redeem the time. Second application. Be especially careful To redeem the parts of time which are most precious. Redeem the parts of time which are most precious. Though all time is very precious, some parts are more precious than others. Particularly, holy time is more precious than common time. Such time is of great advantage for our everlasting welfare. Therefore, above all, improve your Sundays, especially the time of public worship, which is the most precious part. This day we have together is the most precious day. This hour and a half we have together on Sunday is the most precious time. And Edwards tells us, lose it not in sleep. Do not sleep through sermons. Do not be careless Do not be inattentive. Do not have wandering imaginations during this holy hour. How foolish are they who waste away not only their common time, but they waste holy time. The very season of attendance in worship of God. This is foolishness upon foolishness. They waste not just idle time, but they waste the time that they're in the church. Therefore, if you are in the enjoyment of this time, seek the Lord and be alert and watchful. Finally, the time of youth is precious on many accounts. And anyone under 60, you're young, considered youth. All right I think 60 is a new 40 or something, 50 is a new 30, 40 is a new 20. Therefore, if you are in this enjoyment of this time, take heed that you improve it. Let not the precious days and years of youth slip away without improvement. Seek the Lord, as Isaiah 55 6 says Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. What precious exhortations from a godly man! For our remaining time, let me just add just a few applications as well. First of all, to redeem the time, we must cut away barnacles. As we live our lives, we accumulate barnacles that slow us down, that cause us to waste time. Cut it aside, lay it aside. Lay aside time wasters. First of all, consider cutting away people that waste your time. There are friends in your life that they waste their time. They live for dissipation, for fun, for idleness, for entertainment. And if they're in your life, then the bad company corrupts good character. They're there to waste your time. Not to profit that time. You need to cut people away. you got to say, I don't have time for this. I'm following Christ. I want to be your friend. I love you, brother. But I'm following Christ. So if you follow Christ, we'll be friends for life. But if you want to follow Nintendo, I can't be your friend. Right? If you want to follow soap opera, right, follow this world and play board games, great, play board games. But I don't have time for that. You have to cut away Friendships. You need to be cold in this as you follow Christ. You need to cut away activities. Cut away hobbies that just waste time, have no eternal value. You must fill our lives with things that are eternal, things that are profitable, and cut away hobbies and activities that drain and take away time. You know, there are... Our companies, billion dollar companies out there in their R&D department, research and development making things for us to waste our time they're marketing, bombarding us so that we will waste time on their products we need to fight against this and cut away the fluff cut away the fat so that our time is redeemed for Christ and even pursuits of life Life is short. Choose your passions carefully. Instead of being um, jack of all trades, master of none, endeavor to be a master of few things. So if you want to be a master of the Word of God, if you want to be an excellent servant of Christ, excellent man, woman, husband, father, wife, mother, how much time do you have for other passions in this world? Choose your pursuits carefully. Second exhortation, likewise with Edwards, be careful to redeem holy time. Sunday worship, midweek flock, retreats, opportunities for missions. That's why we live, brothers and sisters. That's why we exist. That is why God saved us. You know, Don't have the Ron Artest mentality. Brothers here know what I'm talking about. Ron Artest, Defensive Player of the Year, All-Star. He came to play basketball and he told his coach, Coach, can I take a month off? Why? I'm tired. I'm so worn out. Why? I'm promoting my rap album all over and I'm tired. Can I take a month off? And the coach said, That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, I listened to it. I, I could not believe it. I was just like, kill me now. I mean, what is this? This is ridiculous. But so many Christians have that mentality. Oh, I'm tired of church. You know, I'm watching TV for three hours last night. You know, and so I'm so tired. Can you know, I take a break? Flock? Oh man, I'm I'm so tired from. You know, I, I can't go to flock because I'm so busy with, you know, surfing the web and watching movies. You know, if I do that, just call me Ron. You know, if you do that, I'm going to call you Ron. (laughs) Ron, Don't be a Ron Artest mentality. Redeem the time. And finally, for the parents out there, let's teach our children to redeem the time. Let's not give them excuse. Oh, they're young. That's what being young is all about. That's when they waste time. That's worldly thinking. That's, unbiblical there is no season where we should wait wasting time let me read to you Jonathan Edwards in 1755 wrote a letter to his son Jonathan Jr. he went on a mission trip with a missionary named Gideon Hawley 200 miles into the Delaware wilderness to proclaim the gospel and evangelize the the Indians Jonathan Edwards and Sarah Edwards said it's good for their son to go on this mission trip and sent him off alone with this missionary. And he wrote this in, in his letter. Dear child, though you are a great way away from us, yet you are not out of our minds. I am full of concern for you, often think of you and pray for you. Take heed that you don't neglect or forget Christ. Always set God before your eyes and live in His fear and seek Him every day with all diligence. For He and He only can make you happy or miserable. This week before last, your friend David died, whom you knew and used to play with and who used to live at our house. His soul is gone into the eternal world. Jonathan, this is a loud call of God to prepare you for death. You see, they that are young die as those that are old. David was not much older than you. Therefore, remember what Christ said. You must be born again or you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Therefore, never give yourself any rest unless you have good evidence that you are converted. Always remember that life is uncertain. You know not how soon you must die. Therefore, always be ready. Your tender and affectionate father, Jonathan Edwards. A letter to his son to be vigilant. Not to waste his life, waste his youth, not to waste a moment, but give himself wholly to the cause of Christ. How old was Jonathan? Do you know when you received this letter? Nine years old. Nine years old. They sent him on a mission trip, 200 miles to witness to Indians. And he was warning his son, when you're young, it's not time to waste it. That's the last thing you should be doing, son. You should be redeeming the time because time is precious and the end is near. Father, I know that one day, if you will, I will preside over the funeral of many of the members here at Cornerstone. And if it be your will, you would allow, would visit many members in their hospital bed and hold their hand in their last waking moments. And many of the church leaders will be there, church members will be there. God, We do not desire anyone here to say that day, I wasted my life. The time that God has given me, I threw it away. I wasted it. Oh Lord, that we might say with the Apostle Paul, I fought a good fight, ran a good race. I've spent myself pursuing Christ. Now I'm ready to enter into my rest. Lord, may it be clear in our minds, the teaching of God's Word, the preciousness of time, and how if we do not manage it, time will manage us. If we're not disciplined in this area, then it will conquer us. Knowing the day, the end of the day draws near. Lord, may, us be, may we be vigilant to redeem the time, living as wise Christian men and women. All for your glory in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.